Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, everyone. Hello. Welcome back to My Good Bad Brain. Um, I'm going to keep this intro pretty short because the episode's decently long. Um, this is going to be the first of, I'm just going to call this season three. We're starting season three. Yes, season two is only like 12 episodes, but we were spending some time thinking about things, figuring things out. I don't know. Uh, season three. Why am I calling this season three? Well, it's a new year and uh, also it's kind of a new format. And this I thought would be a nice one to kick it off with. It's these live streams we've been doing on Mixer.com slash my good bad brain we've been doing a live stream every sunday morning uh for the last few weeks it's at 10 a.m pacific time again mixer.com slash my good bad brain and it's me but it's also dr nicholas barr who you may remember from an earlier episode a while ago he's one of the few professionals i've had come on the show to talk about basically trauma processing he's a, a experienced social worker traumatologist he was also on ali's podcast ologies the traumatology episode and that's a wonderful uh, very real podcast you know very good good in research and fun and uh anyway Nick's amazing and uh he's teaching right now in Las Vegas and I asked him about this whatever long story short he's into this idea and we wanted to create a way basically to you know everyone talks a lot about like it's hard to get mental health care it's hard to find mental health access and information and Nick's a professional he's a doctor and so you know, in the interest of me realizing, I guess that to me, the best part of a good bad brain is this creation of solidarity and community and things like that. Uh, we thought maybe we try making somebody who has a lot of professional knowledge more accessible to everybody. And so uh, this seems like a good way to do that. So uh, we're doing this live stream now and it's, uh, you know, we use take questions from, from y'all Um and this was our third one, but it was the first one that I didn't have really any technical issues and the sound came out nice and clean. And also we got some great questions from people. So I thought I'd, uh, I'd like, let this be the first of our, we're going to call it season three of this new format. I'll still do brain breathers once in a while. And, um, but I want to try this for a bit. I think this is really great. So uh, that being said, if you have any thoughts or topics or questions you'd like us to discuss on upcoming episodes of My Good Bad Brain in the live stream sort of way um, of me or Dr. Nick, uh, probably more Dr. Nick, then you can send them to mygoodbadbrain at gmail.com or uh, hit me up on my Instagram and stuff. I do have Good Bad Brain Instagrams. I'm on the Jared Sleeper Instagrams more often, that Twitter, stuff like that. But uh, yeah, that'd be great. So anyway, I'm going to I'm gonna chill out on this. I'm gonna, Oh, oh, I'll just say too. I know there's a lot going on. We'll talk more about 
COVID-19 stuff and this week, but I, just as a side note, just health in general, um, check out the ologies episode this week. Uh, it was, you know, virology. We talked to a virologist primarily, but there are no less than four ologists that show up in that episode. And, uh, Ali does like her journalist best on this one. I mean, going to primary sources and there's just a ton of great info about uh, virus stuff. And I know it's stressing me out, it's stressing everybody out and uh, knowledge is power. So go check that out. Uh, the ologies episode virology this week, it's like a COVID-19 special mega episode and it's all kinds of stuff about the nature of the virus and how that works and sanitizing. And uh, they, we talked to the um, disasterologist about just sort of like disaster planning and how people act and things you can do. And it's great. It's a, uh, it's a great episode. So Oh, and of course, Merlin Tuttle makes an appearance, which I don't know if you, whatever, he's a bad expert and it's, it's, he's just wonderful because bats are getting a lot of blame for this that maybe they don't deserve. Anyway. All right. Thanks y'all. I'm going to shut up and I'm going to let the, the tape run from last Sunday and I'll be doing this. Join us this Sunday, please. 10 a.m. If you like doing a little self-care stream with us. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're probably going to be in quarantine anyway, so tune in. Thanks, guys. Mixer.com slash my good bad brain. And then, of course, as usual, patreon.com slash my good bad brain. If you like to support the show, mygoodbadbrain.com if you want merch. Lovely. All right. Leave us a review. I don't know. Okay. Thanks. Here we go. On with the show. Bye. Me and Nick. See ya. Welcome to my good bad brain. I'm a normal person, so I'm insane. I've got depression and ADHD, but I'm doing better medicated me i'm still not always sure whether i exist or what being a person even really is but i figured out a long time ago that being alive is beautiful how are you nick how are you good to see you yeah good to see you man how's everything going uh you know fine i think like as good as they can be, I think. Like, yeah. there's a, politically, it's there's a lot to get freaked out about, and there's like coronavirus and stuff. Uh, yeah. and, you know, what's the vibe like in LA? Is it are people freaked out, or is it a, uh, people think, wearing masks? I'm not seeing a lot of masks. I'm definitely not seeing a lot of masks. I think the message got out about masks, though, that masks don't do much. I do feel like. Do you feel like people are like canceling bigger big events and things like that, or not really gathering? You yeah, know? there's co- conferences are getting canceled left and right. Yeah, I mean South by Southwest got canceled, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, what? I, I was just being an asshole. I just yeah. said tragedy. <laughs> you know what's funny about it is it's like um, for some people it's like a big deal because. Uh, poor artists, I have friends, not to like, yeah. well, actually, but my friend was like, he's like, oh, a bunch of my friends who have shows or like I, somebody had like a short film was going to premiere there. And they're like, oh, I guess they guess it's not now, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, um, so. anyway, uh, but no, it's just it's just strange that it's like in the air and uh, like along with all the other stuff, you know, like, are we dealing yeah. with it? Coronavirus is like. I feel like uh, Allie and I were talking about the other day, like, you know, climate change is way more existential threat than, you know, than like this semi, this temporary virus thing. Yeah. But that there's something about this virus that's like, you know, the thing they always say, like, oh, wearing your seatbelt is more important than, uh, 
you know, screening for terrorists. Like, you, you know, you're going to, you die in car crashes. You don't die from like the right. airport, you know? Right. Um, but like people, one, one's like a scarier, a more like romantic problem. That's like front yeah. and center in your brain. So you think about that instead of the other one. It feels like that, like uh, climate change is too like imaginary or too like lengthy or too ephemeral until it's not, you know, the, the time it takes for the hurricanes to happen or whatever. So, but like, this virus feels immediate enough and romantic enough that people are like, Oh no, we have to prep. Yeah. You know? I think there's like genetic memory of contagion fear too, you know, just where, oh, you think where so? well, I don't know if that's a real thing, but yeah, I feel like there is, I mean, from an, you know, it would make sense from an evolutionary perspective that the idea of some unseen contagion is like strikes deep in the bones, you know, whereas yes. the idea of some of these more abstract things is hard yeah. for people to grasp. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't know. I was, uh, I don't know. It's just, it's just strange. I, I, I was, I, the part of that conversation started because we were like, oh, it feels like weird that people are actually making changes about this almost, which actually, yeah. I don't know. Well, well, I have questions kind of related to that today from some people, but um, yeah. I was gonna, let's throw to you. Do you have anything going on in the world of psychology, mental health stuff that, that we should be aware of that you want to talk about this week? Well, the, so the thing, the only thing I want to mention briefly is I think, you know, I don't know, you know, and maybe, maybe people might know that my, one of my research interests is mindfulness, like mindfulness as a kind of um, protective factor in the context of trauma exposure. But there's a lot of evidence to suggest that kind of similar to physical exercise, mindfulness practice has a host of benefits for a range of issues and problems. So I was, uh, without getting too deep into the political quagmire, I was just looking up kind of the normative curve for development of brain disorders uh, related to aging. Yeah. And, and uh, I just was reminded of a couple of studies that show that meditation practice, just like basic attention, focus on the breath type meditation practice has um, benefits for um, ameliorating cognitive decline. Oh. So not not that meditation is going to somehow cure Alzheimer's. That's not the case. Right. Just that it helps to um, improve some cognitive scores uh, as yeah. we age. That makes sense so, to me. I mean, yeah. I think like it, it does. I mean, use it or lose it as a general principle seems to be exactly. like pretty accurate. The older I get, the more I notice it with. Uh, physically for sure and yeah. then and then i think it's a i don't know i always hesitate because now i have a professional here so you can tell me if this is true or not but i feel like it's always been important to me to remember that my brain is a physical organism as well that like yeah. it'll be ruled by some of the same because it's so easy to think of my thoughts and my feelings and my emotions my perceptions as something non-physical like you know but to to uh confuse that with like um I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like something consciousness is something that is, doesn't seem physical. You know what I'm saying? But like understanding that the things that shape that consciousness or inform that consciousness are utterly physical. Anything I smell or taste or see. And then as a result, anything I think is like made in my brain. And so like with physical stuff, it, it becomes very apparent. Like, Oh, when I stop uh, lifting, like pain comes back into my knees that wasn't there before when I try to do it yeah. again or uh, whatever. Like if you just continue and you can see that in people that age, if they've continued oh, yeah. to be physical their whole lives, that doesn't, they, they can still kind of move when they're older. And so it stands to reason that your mind, you know, if you keep using it, if you try to like 
you know, very intentionally focus on it, on things, consider things and just, you know, run your brain through its paces that that would yeah. help it. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta run your brain. I mean, the, the thing also is there is really good evidence to show that physical exercise is one of the best predictors of brain health into, um, older adulthood, older really? adulthood. Yeah. Because think how complex and difficult it is, how demanding on the brain it is to manage all these physiological systems when you're at arousal, like during exercise. Right. So yeah, I mean. Oh, that is interesting because I also yeah. noticed that um, when doing more like complex physical movements or like poses in yoga or, or certain like, uh, you know, Olympic lifts or kettlebells, things like that, if they're more complex, uh, sometimes it's very taxing on your nervous system. Like I always think burpees, the, the move oh, yeah. where you, uh, drop for a push up and then jump up and, and, you know, re reach your hands overhead. There's so much more exhausting than if you only did a jump and a push up and uh, a squat, like, and added them together. There's something about like the whole thing that seems to uniquely tax your nervous system. So that's interesting. I never thought of that, that like it would also be working out your, literally be working out your mind, like that you're, yeah. you know, all the connections it's making are demanding. Yeah, you're running a you're running a demanding program, you know. So it's computationally demanding. Well, yeah, that's interesting, and that was a very um, that was a gentle introduction without uh, going into why you might be thinking about uh, ways to stop cognitive decline as you get older. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. All right, so I'm gonna, I got some questions from listeners today. I want to start with a few. Um, one of them, I'm going to start with this first one, just because it seemed related to the coronavirus topic that we are talking yeah. about. Uh, someone here's I will read the question uh, IDK how many other folks are doing this but my work just pulled the trigger on doing work from home for the rest of the month because coronavirus uh, no cases just precaution because where they live is a whole mess in that regard um, any advice on one staying productive when you're not used to working from home Two, not letting the stressy depressy or anxiety get to you um, so I was going to, I wanted, I, it's, I wanted to obviously talk about, I think that working home, I just wanted to side note, say that something that occurred to me about this that I think is interesting is just about the shape of our world and things to consider is that, uh, I I've seen a lot of people from the, um, I guess, I don't know what the correct term is, dis disabled community or, or under, you know, I don't know, but like that people have been fighting for like the ability to work from home and being like, Hey, we can do these jobs. Just, we don't have to come to an office if you're disabled in some way, um, mentally or physically or whatever, uh, for a while. And, and people are like, no, you have to come to the office. And how funny it is that as soon as this coronavirus works, so people are saying it's like a little bit of a revealing of like kind of ableist, uh, sort of, um, standards and practices that we have that like, as soon as there's this like virus thing, people are like, okay, well, I'll just work from home. No big deal. <laughs> um, yeah. Or if you want to get more political about it, that it's like uh, maybe an aspect of capitalism wanting to rule your life. We got to be able to watch you and, and police you. And it's the only way you had to come to our office. But um, anyway, do you what do you think about that? Like I do actually this some of this would be helpful for me because I'm totally freelance and I often have difficulty with both of these issues of being isolated when I work like with focus and stuff like that and like just being w doing work but also uh being isolated like you know one thing i envy about people who do go to an office is that they see people every day you know is that they go and uh interact with human beings and they don't get stuck in their office behind their screens home alone in their house where maybe they don't shower for a few days you know 
Yeah, totally. So, um, yeah, I, I can relate to this because, you know, when you're in graduate school, especially when you're like writing your dissertation, you know, people just kind of like disappear into the, like, you know, into your cave, your, your dissertation cave. Um, I mean, look, I think there, there's, um, you know, lots of folks have weighed in on this. I, I would say, unfortunately, kind of the, the common sage advice is probably the best, which is you have to make a routine for yourself. Yeah. And that can look a lot of different ways. I know I forget the the name of this technique, but you were mentioning that uh, Ali does this. The oh, kind of the uh, Pomodoro uh, method. Yeah, the Pomodoro method. That, so that actually, is it, that, yeah, for okay. people who are interested in in that, I I do find that that helps her and it um helps me when I kind of like play you know play along and follow it when she's doing it. You set a timer that's basically like uh, I, I don't know the exact time. I think it's like thirty minutes of work and then five minutes of uh, screw around, like or or and you can yeah. set the time to whatever you want. Maybe it's forty five minutes, fifteen minutes, I think. But um, the idea being to keep yourself focused on trying to complete tasks. Uh, that if you know you you're gonna you want to scroll online or something distracts you, like go on and look that thing up or respond to that text, whatever. You just tell yourself, oh, don't do it now. This is work. You're gonna be able to do that in twenty minutes. Like we'll be you can do whatever you want. Right. So, yeah, exactly. So I think whether it's that or having another kind of routine, I find that, and I think that, again, the evidence would support ha having a written down schedule can be yeah. helpful. I also find just for me personally that um, if I go into the, so now I work in an office, but it's my office, you know, like nobody's in there, so it can still feel pretty isolating. But if I start by kind of like, well, I'm going to like read some New York Times articles and like go on Twitter and blah, blah, blah. I'll like if I try to like ease into it, that's a disaster, you know, then I just keep on fucking doing that. Yeah. So what I find to be most helpful for me is like, I'll just go in, reply to the emails I need to reply to, and then work on something that's work, but that I like. So for me, like I'm, I'm running some analyses right now for a new manuscript and I just like that. So I'll just start working on those analyses and yeah. So prioritize yeah. things that you are actually attracted to, to working on. I find that to be easier. Yeah. Other people are like, I'm going to go in and like hit the hardest thing I have to do. Yeah. You know, I used to say, and it doesn't really work for me, but I used to say like when we have like an impossible, basically I saw this, there's this, you know, there's like an old phrase that's like, how do you eat an elephant? Like one bite at a time or something. I don't know. <laughs> I just, it's a stupid yeah. aphorism. So I always liked that. I was like, just a way to like, you know, one step at a time. It's the same thing, right? It's just this, you know, visual. But then I saw this video uh, on like a National Geographic type thing, you know, of like a hyena going up to like eat a dead elephant carcass. But the elephant skin is like too tough to eat it. So they're like, how's the hyena going to do this? And then they'll be like, they find the softest part or something like that. And they start eating the butthole of the elephant. <laughs> and like hyena just goes in through the ass. And I was like, that's a good addition to the metaphor. Like when you have a huge task to complete, when you have to eat an elephant, what do you do? Just one bite at a time, starting with the shittiest part, you know? Yeah. And, I was oh like, God, and sometimes uh, that does help. Sometimes it does actually help me to be like, let's just go get the t tedious thing. You're afraid of just attack that part first. But yeah. um, the other answer, the other way you could read that metaphor is going through the easiest point of entry first, which is pick something. Yeah, I think the right answer as with like so much of this stuff is what's most effective for you. So, totally. you know, I'd try a couple different ways, but you know, you have to, I would just say having some kind of 
written plan that you follow yeah. uh, with schedule uh, is critical. I mean, I'm like the, you know, that comes not natural to me at all. Like I wasted so much time rebelling against structure, but yeah. I really need it. It's so helpful for me. And so if you're at all like that, I think having some kind of structure is helpful. The other yeah. thing I would say is like, I just go to the gym. I try to do yeah. it in the middle of the day if I can. In the middle um, of the day? I try to. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I just can't because I'm working on something or I have meetings, whatever. But I try to break up the day with the gym because I just feel like recharged cognitively oh, and yeah. physically. So if I notice I'm just getting kind of unproductive, if I just go to the gym and come back, that that helps me to be more productive. So right, it can yeah, be hard yeah. to do that when you're in an office. But if you're working from home, you know, that that could be something to try. Yeah, totally. All right, cool. Um, all right, the next questions I want to get into are both uh, ADD-related stuff, I think. So we had one in the chat that I'm going to read uh, and kind of pair up these con these questions. Uh, does ADHD medication help with emotional flooding and or the depression that often often accompanies ADHD? That's from Sweet Nothing. Thank you. And um, the other question I got was, uh, I fixate on stuff in Spiral. Um, their significant other, I, I believe, uh, thinks I have OCD, but I don't want to be stereotyped by a syndrome nor dependent on a medication. Other people have thought I was ADHD, but I just think I'm weird and spontaneous. Shrugs. So doing a little bit of ADHD questions. I will say, I would just say anecdotally, I've been taking medication for ADHD. I don't know. The, both of these questions speak to me a lot. Um, as uh, I felt the diagnosis that I got two years ago as ADHD and then trying a little medication for it really changed my life or and my experience of my life, I think. Um so the two questions here, broadly speaking, I think have to do with uh, will medication treat the things that you don't – basically the two things. One, the common, I think, misperception about what ADHD is, which is uh, saying like, you know, I just think I'm weird and spontaneous and so – but other people may, maybe think I have ADHD and just saying like, you know – you might have no um, – and correct me on any of this. I'm, I'm going to throw to you. I just thought I'd talk about since I had it for a little bit. That like yeah. um, some – a lot of adults who have adult ADHD won't even exhibit outward uh, – they call it um, outward hyperactivity or something like that, external hyperactivity, something like that. They have an internal hyper uh, – they call it internal hyperarousal was the phrase that I saw. So you just have um, – thoughts that are racing and i think that could, well my experience circular and like uh, co constant and that's where some of the emotional flooding stuff comes from and the depression symptoms i believe they come from uh rejection sensitivity dysphoria that's one of the things that something will happen that triggers you you will perceive a rejection or a failure or something like that so which is sort of a rejection of yourself and then you'll just ruminate and and spin about it in your head and you'll have so much experience that outwardly you might not even be showing and that um certainly i have some of that external hyper arousal like a typical sort of image of a 12 year old boy you know who's all over the place uh adhd kind of thing that happens to me sometimes for sure uh where weird and spontaneous seem to be part of it but sometimes when i think i'm suffering from it the most i'm actually very quiet i'm very isolated it's just like internally i'm i'm going crazy um so i fully understand also the fear of like getting a diagnosis i didn't do it till i was 32 i'm 34 now because I knew my dad had been diagnosed with it, and I felt with that and some other diagnoses he had, I just felt like he relied too much on medication, and it changed him, and he didn't do much work, you know, to try to work on himself, and that freaked me out, and I just also didn't like the idea of having 
uh, a label of saying like, oh, this is going to be me now. And and what if I yeah. are there going to be jobs that I try to apply for that says on my resume somewhere like, oh, he's he's got depression and he's got ADHD. He's got a mental illness or something like that. You know, I was I was just so freaked out by that possibility. Um, so I understand yeah. the hesitation. Um, I know I'm kind of rambling about this, but the two things I will say is one. Uh, I'm so glad that I did get this diagnosis because when I did, there's so much literature. It, it's such a relief. This is also what led me to go to a psychiatrist in the first place because I had found some articles online and, and been like, whoa, whoa, that's me, that's me. Where it it is such a relief when you realize the way you've been feeling that you think has to do with moral failures, that has sure. to do with like decision-making problems. Yeah, that you that you know cultural mores that you are just lazy or something like that or or ign- or um ignorant of people's needs or just uncaring and selfish. <clears throat> and when you realize some of these behavioral uh, issues have nothing to do with those sort of moral judgments, they have to do with you know brain patterning that you have, and that there are recorded patterns to this. There's treatments for it. There's so many other people out there who have what you have. It's a great relief, and to realize that there are some you know strategies that have already been established to to work with it. And then I will say, lastly, my experience is that my medication, uh, which I just take a little bit of uh, Adderall, it's a fairly low dose. Um, yeah, definitely helped with those symptoms that you don't, because I think people think of Adderall as a performance enhancing drug for focus uh, or something like that, a, a fun sort of uh, brain cocaine. And um, I will say, as somebody who has ADHD, that if you really do have it and it serves your brain the way it's it's meant to... It's sort of calming. It does help with focus. And um, I have found it definitely helps with those emotional flooding and depression sort of uh, symptoms, these more emotional aspects of ADHD, which I really didn't necessarily expect it to. But I noticed in the past, um, in my relationship even, sometimes if I was inconsistent with medication, we would start like fighting in the same ways. Like my rejection sensitivity would be crazier or like I would do the same emotional flooding. And it would be like, have you been taking your medication? And I'd realize like, oh man, I really haven't. And some of these like old bad patterns would behave, behavior would come up. Things that are in me, things that have to do with my responses and my overreaction to things. And again, emotional flooding and things um, yeah. that it really did regulate those things as well. So that was a long thing, but those are my experiences anecdotally with ADHD. Please, doctor, what, what do you think? Well, so let me first just say that I'm not a psychiatrist and only medical doctors are able to prescribe psychiatric medication. So if people want to know more about psychiatric medication, um, they really should talk to a psychiatrist, which is, that's my disclaimer. Um, I I, I want to ask you really quick, an interesting parallel. I just thought though, psychology, you were just saying, you said earlier about the scheduling thing that like what should always be the, you said something like what should always be the thing is, does it work for you? Yeah. So that's exactly. So let me, let me, uh, that, that's a really critical point when it comes to the kind of landscape of diagnosis as well. So let me just kind of zoom out a little bit. I'm really glad that you kind of highlighted your experience where diagnosis was helpful because it helped you to frame your experiences. And that's what diagnosis is. Diagnosis is not meant to be a label or uh, some denigration of your personality or anything like that. The the only reason when it comes to mental health, the diagnosis is useful is if it points to treatment that's effective. That's why we use a diagnosis Mm. because different diagnoses indicate 
different treatments to improve your symptoms. Yeah. That's the point. So to the extent that a diagnosis is useful in pointing you towards a particular treatment, that's why it's effective. For example, we know that there are certain therapeutic techniques and medications that are effective for treating symptoms of depression. So if we diagnose you with symptoms of depression, we know, hey, we should probably look at some of these treatments because the evidence shows that that's effective. Whereas if you're diagnosed with something like schizophrenia, there are other treatments and medications that have been demonstrated to be effective for that particular disorder. So we'd want to point you in that direction. So diagnosis is a navigational tool. It's a tool for navigating you towards effective treatments. That's it. Mm. That's a utility. Okay. So when it comes to ADHD, yeah, the primary uh, treatment has typically been stimulant medication and stimulant medication has been shown to be very effective. Okay. Also stimulant medication can be effective for people who don't have ADHD. So, you know, if I take stimulant medication, which I've done on occasion, like when I was having to finish my dissertation, I took a little stimulant medication. I do not have ADHD, but that allowed me to sit down and work for like five hours uninterrupted. Yeah. You know? So I think that is the nature of stimulant medication. Mm. It's performance in the brain is also effective for people yeah. without ADHD. What's, I, what's interesting about that to me is that um, like you're like for five hours at a time is like my baseline experience is one of inability to work at all or ability to sit and work for 12 hours at a time. Like no, like not even really joking. Like I'm like sure. five hours, five hours. That's it. Like when I do work sprints, okay. they, they go crazy. There's like a few. And I, and I, this was a big thing for me in understanding ADHD as well, that it isn't just uh weird and spontaneous. It's not just scattered focus. It's, it should be understood as a focus regulation issue. It's not that yeah. you can't focus. It's sometimes you, um, which is interesting because I always feel like um, the effect that a stimulant medication has on a neurotypical brain, I feel like ends up being sort of similar to what it's like to just have an ADHD brain if you don't have it. Like that sometimes you'll like I always I kind of feel like I'm on cocaine all the time and sometimes uh, it's very scattered and crazy and sometimes it's very focused and that there's something about taking an actual medication that if you have that uh, does the opposite and I could go into, I've tried to explain my layman understanding in the past, but we don't need to go down that road right now. But I just think that's interesting to hear that your experience doing it. Um, I don't know that it gives you some of, I guess one of the reasons I bring this up is I'm always trying to make people understand like these diagnoses don't have to be scary. There really are like you just said a tool to understanding your brain and that there are actually some great benefits, I think to some of the, atypical brain shapes out there and that with ADHD you you are also given a few superpowers it's like I always feel like it's like if you're making if you were like in a role-playing game and you're like doing your character creation screen that like if you picked ADHD as a trait it would be like you get plus you'd have like a random generator that says like some days you get bonuses to studying and focus and some days you're gonna have you know what I mean yeah yeah so right I mean what I, again I think you know we should to re to reiterate i think we should be looking at these things diagnoses and treatments yeah. as tools to help you be effective and to help you be happier yes. that, that's the purpose and so you know nobody has been able to articulate what a normal brain looks like in oh. any kind of quantitative sense at all how much of a particular neurotransmitter when what types of i mean 
we can we can look right. at brands and say, well, this is a really admirable brand. There's you know like a reduction in gray matter. There's a, there's physiological damage to one of the hemispheres. We can do that stuff, but nobody's been able to say like, oh, well, this is a totally normal functional brain based on these parameters. I mean that that's definitely not the case. Yeah. So I would get less worried about normal and not normal and more focused on if I'm having symptoms or, or issues that bother me and I'm having a really hard time managing them to be effective and happy, is there a professional I can go to talk to who can introduce me to a suite of tools, which will include mm. potentially diagnoses and treatment options? And then why don't I, I can try some of those treatment options to see which are effective. So stimulant mm. medication has been, can be very effective. Also, meditation there's there are studies that show that meditation because it helps with attention management and attention control can be a very effective tool for adhd too so if people are reluctant to you know use any type of medication i I think you should examine that reluctance with a professional but there are other strategies that the evidence shows can be effective so Hmm. diagnosis is not uh telling you what type of person you are it's when it comes to mental health, it's really just asking if a set of symptoms or right. descriptions of behaviors and feelings approximate what you're going through. And if they do approximate what you're going through, it helps us to point to a suite of tools that have been shown to be more effective in ameliorating those symptoms. That's really it. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, I would really encourage people to make an if you're able to if you have insurance or if you can if you can make an appointment with a professional i would do that and it doesn't have to be a psychiatrist you you can if you if you don't want to you know people use the tools that they're trained in and so this is not always the case like i've known many psychiatrists whose goal was to like reduce people's medications but but if you don't want to go right away to somebody who you think might give you a prescription for medication talk to a licensed clinical social worker, talk to a psychologist, talk to a marriage and family therapist and see what approaches they suggest. Yeah. And I would, this is, that's a nice little plug for our, I, I've made a brand new overlay for the channel today. There are some resources we put at the bottom of the screen that Dr. Nick uh, picked for us um, that if you need some extra help, there's obviously some more crisis lines there, but also the NAMI and the DBT websites on there are, are good resources for finding some of this stuff. I know that um, navigating my, I have insurance. That's uh, not the greatest insurance in the world. It's it's uh, you know through Covered California, um, and it is very hard to navigate the. Oh. It's actually miserable, and I and I go to somebody outside of my um, insurance to that I was referred to from. I will just briefly give a mini history of like mental health support I've I've gotten in the past. Um, because I've never had uh, a lot of extra money. And so what I have done is um, the first places I went for therapy were all sliding scale community access places. So I went to the Maple Center. If you're in LA, I went to the Maple Center. And then I went to the Southern California Counseling Center a couple years later. They're wonderful resources. Um, I will say, especially at the second one, uh, at Southern California Counseling Center, usually there's a wait. Usually it's like a, a fifty dollar intake, so you, you gotta save that fifty bucks and and go pay for that. Where they do the intake of they they get you in your system and talk to you and see if you're a fit, if see if there's something they they could help you with. And uh, I'm I'm sure there will be. If you showed up there, there will be probably a, a reason that they'll 
help you. Um, and then usually there's a wait. Uh, in my case, uh, at this, like the wait can be a couple weeks or for, you know, before they can put you somewhere, yeah. because again, these are sliding scale resources. So, um, like anything that's trying to help the community, usually they're a little inundated and, and doing their best. But, um, I will say the second place I went to the Southern California counseling center, when I wound up there, um, and did my intake, uh, I was in a really bad place. I don't think I realized how bad I was till I got there. I was fucking very scared in the sitting room there. It was, uh, I felt like a dog at the vet. I said, I just felt like crying for no reason, like looking around everywhere and just being like, what the fuck, you know, what am I doing here? And, uh, and I was apparently worse than I even could feel. They, they were like, um, we're going to get you in here as soon as possible. We can tell you're in, uh, some crisis. And I was like, Okay, <laughs> you know, so they got me in that week. Um, they gave me some phone numbers, like similar to the ones on the screen in case things got worse before then. And then I started going and I think it was 30 bucks, 25 bucks or 30 bucks a session um, was my like, was it worked out to like my, you know, um, which I, I know even just an extra 25 or 30 bucks can be difficult. But, uh, you know, eat, eat some canned fish for a few days and don't buy lunch and you, you can do it. So it, it's a pretty wonderful resource. Um, so I started there. And then years later, when I decided to try to see a psychiatrist, I had had a good relationship with my therapist at the counseling center. And she had left to do her pri own private practice as a, a psychologist, therapist. Uh, and um, I reached out to her and she gave me a referral to a psychiatrist. And I ended up going to that psychiatrist uh, for, for the intake and medication and, and that kind of a thing all outside of my resources she has been wonderful and being like helpful about the rates like i basically pay her her real rates when i can afford them and when i can't she lets me pay a reduced rate i think a lot of people in this profession really do want to help people and um so there, there are there are people to, to look that will help when i tried to go through my own system which would be a cheaper cost it was a nightmare it was like um they make it seem easy and there's some teledoc resources that are kind of neat or whatever but in a lot of the places on, on my HMO wouldn't see me if I didn't have uh, a diagnosis already. People would be like, we'll see you and fill your, your prescriptions. But like they wouldn't do intake me meetings or it was very strange and, and very difficult. So yeah. uh, I just want to say that I commiserate with anybody who's having those issues. I know it can be expensive and difficult, but it has really changed. I, I mean, I could go as far as saying it saved my life. I, it's absolutely changed my life in a positive way. So I implore you, um, look for those, uh, those, those resources that are community accessible, those sort of sliding scale places to start yeah. are great. Let me, I think it's so valuable for people to hear that story. And let me just... Um, I think like one, you know, sort of the subtext to your story there is that this even, you know, it's very rarely the case that you're going to have a immediate relief. Like yes. it's a, it's a process. It's a long process and we should accept in advance that it is going to be a long process. Like any kind of, like, like any domain of health, it's going to be a long and ongoing management process. And the better you kind of get control of it and start managing it, the easier it is to manage over time. Like diabetes, for example, getting it under control in the beginning is really difficult and, you know, takes a lot of investment and effort. And then managing it over time tends to be easier once yes. you're in a good system of care with people who know you. And it's the same for mental health. You know, that being said, if you are, we have some numbers on the bottom. If people are feeling like in acute crisis, they're feeling like they might kill themselves or they might, they're in a, um, 
an untenable situation. If you go through a psychiatric emergency room, you tend to get plugged into care fast, but it's a very unpleasant experience. So I wouldn't you know, recommend that unless people feel as if they really cannot keep themselves safe. Um, but that those, is um, that's like the 5150 type of uh, resources, like emergency. Yeah, I mean, or... so 5150 is in California is uh, involuntary hold. Uh-huh. Um, so if you self-refer to a psyche ER, uh, and you meet the criteria for admittance, you won't be placed on a 5150 because you're there voluntarily. Ah, okay. uh, but similarly, yeah, like if you were, you know, um, it's similar, right? Where you're then at the psych ER and you get kind of referred to your mental health services through their office of discharge planning and all that stuff. You worked so at I, I don't think that's a great way to go yeah. unless you're in an emergency. Um, you you worked at some of those like public uh, resources, right? In LA for a while. Sorry? You worked at some of those public resources. Yeah, I worked for LA County Department of Mental Health. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, which, you know, the clinic, the clinic where I worked, I think is excellent. It was Harvard UCLA. I mean, I really think it's top notch. Um, it kind of depends, you know, where they're different. There are like eight service areas in LA County. So it's, there are a lot of different clinics, but. Um, and you're, and yeah. do you recommend those? Or you're saying those are ones to like, if, if in an extreme circumstance, use them. Oh, but if you feel. I do recommend the public mental health clinics in LA. Okay. Yeah. I think that's a good resource, but they don't meet, not everyone can be seen there, you know? Yes. Again, that kind of middle tier problem where if you like make enough money that you can't receive public benefits, it's actually quite expensive to go there. Um, but, but this, the psychiatric emergency room is like when, so I worked at an outpatient clinic, but the psyche ER is like a residential, they have beds, you know, where you would stay overnight. Yeah. And that people it really is if you're feeling like you might kill yourself or you, you know, you, you or someone, you know, um, is having such an acute mental health crisis that they really just can't take care of themselves. Like yeah. they're having you know, florid delusions or hallucinations or something like that. Um, I, so a side note to this, this question came in the chat from IndigiQueer93, um, or comment question, I don't, but I think it's important because it's related to this whole thing of diagnosis and seeking help, understanding the function of a diagnosis, how do we uh, move forward with the normalizing uh, with normalizing such labels in a healthy way? Maybe for those who don't have the label, the diagnosis, versus those who do. So I I decide you know speaking to this issue of we may understand, and I would say it seems to me that that is part of the start. I still have to deal with my own internalized stigma. I mean, part of the reason I started the podcast was I think that the destigmatizing of mental health is something that's gotten great in in the public discourse, you know, telling people to seek mental health and that there's no shame in it and blah, blah, I think is so true. We just tend to feel that way for other people and that turning the the lens on ourselves and being like, what do I, you know, I'm very woo woo and supportive and kind. And I'm like, oh, great. You're getting help to everybody else. But am I, do I really feel that way? Am I still afraid of being labeled with this thing? And so I, I don't know. I would think part of it would be processing our own uh, judgments and, and, you know, preconceived notions about these, you know, if you find out yeah. that somebody is ADHD or depressed or, um, BPD even, or something that you don't just go like, Oh, they're crazy. You know? I mean, it's, you know what, it's really, it's really tricky and nobody has, uh, there are like very, very few well-studied anti-stigma interventions, but 
one of the things that seems to be helpful is when people in leadership positions um, disclose and contribute to a, a culture that's accepting. So, you know, people who are in power positions in society, like our kind of wealthy, older white men, I think those people need to be disclosing, you know? Yeah. Those people need to be um, contributing to a culture of acceptance and destigmatization. Uh, because, you know, it's helpful when people who are kind of already in precarious social positions do that. Like, that's really helpful and important. But we need people who are at the top of the hierarchy to be doing this also, you know? Um, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. I think otherwise it's, like, just on us to, like, build our new world as we keep going. Yeah. The other thing I would say is that, you know, I do think that, we need to have a balance of, and I really mean a balance of acceptance and kind of um, holding for ourselves and for others who have these problems, you know, um, yeah. when we have them, because, you know, it's like one in five or more. Uh, I, actually, I think it's one in three at some point in their life is going to have some of these problems. Okay. It's a lot of fucking yes. people. And I'm guessing it's more, you know, so it's just very common. Um, at the same time, holding is not enough. I, I do think it's incumbent on you to seek treatment, whatever that looks like, you know, whether it's professional treatment, if you have access to those resources or self-help tools, it's not enough to say, this is my problem and everyone needs to like accept where I am right now. That That's one part of it. But the other piece is you got to work on, yeah being happier and getting better. And and I don't want people to mishear me and say it's your fault and you need to do everything. I'm not saying that. It's both of those things together yeah. at the same time. It's a dialectic of acceptance internally and asking for acceptance from other people. You've got to do that. But it's also on working to make the changes. It's both acceptance and change at the same time. And yeah. they're like a yin-yang circle. You know, like you can't really make change without first having acceptance, but acceptance is enough without also working yeah. to make so that that's a dialectic. Um, yeah, I, I totally I think that's so important to mention because I, I do feel like there's a very confusing one thing that really gets my goat when I see it is um, is like as somebody who is like, a, OK, how can I say this? I don't know. I'll just say it and say it wrong or whatever I'm going to say. I do think there's a bit of a thing in the culture right now of of some people observe, especially people in positions of privilege observe. They they seem to observe whether or not it's real, but they they get the message that there's a kind of social currency to having anything that could be victimy that there's that if you could say, how dare you? I have this thing that there's some sort of identity power like there's a social currency that comes with that and nothing makes me more bothered than people who use a diagnosis or, or you know like that they have some sort of mental state as an excuse without doing any work and I, I say that not because I'm like pissed that they're getting some kind of social currency out of saying they're depressed it's because having depression having ADHD fucking sucks sometimes like as much as I am like I, I you know I do like to see it as a superpower I do I do like to make it positive for myself 
it's it doesn't feel good to have depression. It doesn't feel good to have uh, a, a brain and work and engagement habits that really don't fit a lot with the standard economy and, and social structure that we have. It's very difficult. And um, it also feels really bad when those behaviors, the negative aspects of them, hurt your relationships, hurt your, your um, loved ones, and make your life difficult in that way. And so when I see people who use a diagnosis or use a phrase about their, um, their condition, whatever, without evidently trying to work on it, it, it really bothers me because I'm like, oof, I don't know. There's something about it that's just like, you can't just say, hey, I, I'm, I have BPD or like, hey, I don't get on me. I have depression. There's a fine line between like, making um, your space for yourself and like you said this acceptance and looking for a destigmatization from your community and your world yeah. and like are you doing anything to to try to fix it for yourself you know well right i mean so this is a thing like my my kind of holy grail for all of this stuff is effectiveness and if it was effective to ask everyone else around you to just accommodate you then I would say, sure, why not do that? If that's working, do that. I the think that's part of the problem is for some people, it's effective that you well, you get to be like, oh, I get to be in this community. If I get, oh, yeah, I'm a special it, citizen now. You know what I mean? Right. So what I would say is that it can be effective in the short term. In the, in the short term, which I think why people right. get kind of addicted to this tool, it can be very effective in the short term because I think most people, and maybe it's just most people I know, being in this kind of specialized world, when they hear someone is going through something, they want to accommodate. Oh, okay, I get it. Yes. I will accommodate. But you know, two, three, four, five, six months down the road, that strategy ceases to be effective. And what will happen is typically you will you burn bridges, you burn yeah. people out in your social network, you lose that support, and the symptoms get worse. I mean, yeah. I've just seen that pattern happen many, many times. And so, as with most things, you know, short-term effective coping strategies are typically not the same as long-term effective coping strategies. Yeah. And that's why we need to have that dialectic. Yeah. Um, I think uh, two people in the chat said great uh, things um, uh, like taking responsibility of the diagnosis and not taking the blame of it is my takeaway. Someone else yeah. said your mental illness is not your fault, but it is your responsibility. And I'm like, both yeah, of those are spot on. Exactly. One of the assumptions in DBT, this dialectical behavior therapy is that you almost certainly did not cause all of your problems. Right. And you will be the one who has to fix them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, those yeah. things are both true at the same time. It's definitely not your, all the shit that you're going through is definitely not all your fault. Right. But you are going to have to fix it. Yes. I, that to me, I, I love that because something I struggle with, and I know I've said this a million times, but I'll keep saying it because it's always the line I'm trying to, I'm trying to walk here and trying to find my way through for myself and for the things I say and put out with the, sh with the show is like, I don't want to disempower. Like I, I first of all want to create a space of validation, acceptance, community, and solidarity saying like your problems are real. Like it's not just something in your head. It's not just toughen up. It's just, it's not just, it's a physical issue that you're experiencing. And even if it's not physical, it's physical. Like traumas have real effects on people. This is real. What you're going through is real. Yeah. At the same time, I want to make sure for myself that I don't get so down the path of this is real that I disempower myself from healing myself, that I, yeah. that I t remove my own agency to change well, my behaviors to work at it, you know? 
exactly because because understanding is not the end point it is the beginning point yes so you need to have some kind of understanding and you need to have some kind of acceptance and self-validation and hopefully some from the community as a you know your network as a starting point but that's your foundation you know that's not the end from there it becomes how do i employ strategies and intervention to get myself to the place where I want to be, where I'm more effective in my life and happier and meeting my goals and, you know, living consistent with values. That That's the next step. And yeah. that's like really hard. It takes a lot of work. And I got to say also, I think if you have people who really love you in your community, who know you and love you for real, sometimes I'm, I'm great. Like, I think of it almost like um, if you've ever been in a, in a in a sort of codependent relationship, real dramatic, real toxic. We've all been in this when we're younger. Um, and eventually your friends stop giving a fuck. Like the first the first times they're like they listen to you and they're there as you go on and on for hours about like. And then I had to t- respond to the text because of this, you know, or whatever, like just saying nonsense. And then like eventually they'll stop. Eventually you break up, you get that, they, they cradle you, they're with you. Oh God, they hate the person for you, whatever. But eventually if you get back together, this thing happens, people get burned out and they start to like not be, they're like, oh really? Did that happen again? Did they do literally the same? Oh, that's weird. <laughs> Crazy. Whoa. I used to do it with my, my, one of my friends. I'd be like, what? They, that's dude. No, that's, there must be some misunderstanding. They, they sound like they probably grew up. Anyway, I say all that to say that I think if someone really loves you, their response is one of going like, all right, well, I'm not going to keep enabling this. And sometimes our own mental illnesses, I, I really think a lot of times it's felt to me like I have a codependent relationship with myself. Like, and if I, my Which friends, probably do. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. probably <laughs> but that this feeling of like, uh, if people really love me, which they, I, some people very close to me, I know really love me and give a shit. They don't put up with it forever. They call me out. They go, Hey, you're doing the same thing. You're falling back into habits that seem to be going on in times that you said you felt really bad or you felt really like you were numbing out or, or whatever was going on. And, um, they don't let you just keep fucking going. And sometimes that can feel bad, especially if you have rejected. You, you can feel like, oh, you hate me. I'm a fuck up, Baba. But if somebody really loves you and they know you, I, I, I think that that, uh, that that will happen sometimes. And it's, it can be quite nice. For sure. Okay. I have one last question. And it's, it's, a, it's a long question. But um, I meant to get to it earlier. But this has been kind of a lively um, talk. And uh, so perhaps we'll go a little over with it. But. Let's just, I want to get into this one because this is the one I really want to ask. It's a big one. Yeah. And I think it'll relate to some of the things we've talked about already. Um, <clears throat> this person said uh, they're, they were complimenting the podcast and saying some of the thoughts feel like their thoughts. And it's nice to know they're not alone in that. And then continue. <clears throat> I feel alone in my mental illness lately. I suffer from derealization, depression, ADD, which are possibly all symptoms of complex PTSD. I'm not medicated. I've only had bad experiences with meds and with my dissociation issues, it can get pretty weird. I would love to hear you guys talk about derealization and ways to cope with that. With all of that, existence feels really heavy. I do a lot of staying home and doing homework, ignoring people who care about me and letting them know I care, but I can't be consistent for anyone, not even myself. I'm in love with someone who's willing to only see me about once a month when I'm having a good weekend. I want to be better. I want to be social. 
but every cell in my body and mind is working against me. If you guys suggest revisiting medication, what are the best questions to ask so they don't throw a high dose of I can't feel anymore at me? So yeah. I'd love to hear about tools to help cope with dissociative disorders, being social when it's scary to leave the house and you feel like a loser bummer and that nothing is real anyway, so it extra doesn't matter. I'm laughing because I relate to that. And do meds help you become uh, the productive, reliable person that you wish to be in the world? And then they said, sorry if that was way too much, LOL. That's <laughs> like, hey, we're all too much. That's not too much. That's a, That sounds like a yeah. real question. Great. So this is a great question. So first, I just want to say to this person, um, if you have have had traumatic experiences, um, please go and talk to a psychologist or, or a psychiatrist or a licensed clinical social worker. Make the appointment. And if you want to avoid talking about medication right away, go go see a psychologist or a licensed clinical social worker. Um, Start can, can, can I ask, are there, um, are there any sort of teledoc, like remote resources for that? Because I don't know. I know if I live in a big city, usually I can find something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there, there now there's this proliferation of apps. I, I, oh, yeah, and that's the, true. to be honest, the, um, the, uh, outcomes for telehealth seem to be pretty good. This person though, because this seems to be a fairly complex case, I, my recommendation would be if possible for them to make an intake appointment, uh, face to face, um, and to not give up if they don't like the first person they see. Right. So here's the thing, depersonalization, derealization, the experience that, you know, your thoughts aren't real or that the world around you is not real, that you're disconnected from your sensory experience. There are some, some strategies for those for working on that. And it's things like grounding in the five senses. Okay. It's, narrating to yourself what you're seeing smelling tasting touching feeling in the present moment so i'm in my chair i put my hands on the chair i'm telling myself what the wood grain feels like beneath my fingers you know what my body back and butt feel like in my seat what i'm seeing in front of me those are some techniques but here's the thing if you're experiencing trauma symptoms derealization depersonalization can be symptoms of trauma and it's kind of a um sort of like a little bit of a um the mind's way of trying to insulate you from having trauma reminders. And it's just kind of gone a little bit too far. So what what you don't want to do is start taking away these protective strategies for trauma before you replace them with something else that's more effective. And it's just much healthier to do that with professional. We have very good treatments for PTSD, very good. So it's treatable. Um, you know, things like prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, therapy, EMDR, these are gold standard evidence-based trauma treatments. And often you don't use medication. Mm. Uh, now, sometimes medication can be effective for treating trauma. I think in the VA, that's typically first line. I don't love that. And there's a lot of research we could go into to talk about why. But the, the gold standard trauma treatments are talk, are, are uh, therapeutic treatments. Okay. So I wouldn't, you know, and if you tell somebody, look, I don't want to get on medication right away, that's fine. They won't put you on. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, but you, you really do need to make that appointment. And, um, when you work on those trauma symptoms, you know, through one of those interventions, what you start to do is gain some control over the trauma memories and reminders 
they start to go from uh, experiences that make your body feel as if they're happening now, which is one of the kind of hallmarks of trauma memory. They're stored in such a way that retrieval is not located in the present moment. They're, uh, the retrieval triggers the physiological symptoms that would be happening as if the experience was happening now wow. instead of memory of the experience that's happening in the past. So, you know, going through um, those trauma treatments will help re-encode those memories in a way that don't trigger those symptoms. And when that starts to happen, the kind of derealization, depersonalization that insulates you from those symptoms, you won't need those because you'll have control over those memories. And you'll learn some physiological relaxation techniques like uh, progressive muscle relaxation and deep breathing. You know, those are two techniques that I would suggest that you try. Um, but yeah, I think it's critical to go and get that treatment. Um, and again, it doesn't need to start with medication. And actually I would imagine that if you see someone good, they won't immediately start you uh, yeah. with medication. Um, you know, some of the other things in terms of like isolating at home, I mean, this is consistent with, um, you know, avoidance behaviors associated with trauma. So, you know, I think, yeah, when it's a complex case like this, I, I really think you should, uh, see a professional. Yeah. That can be so helpful. The, all the things you described, I mean, I learned only very basics, like tapping some s small EMDR things then the thing you said about the five senses centering thing, I had a therapist run me through that, um, which was like both very helpful things. Because I remember I, I've said this on the podcast before, but it was a moment for me that I always think about was my going to my because I will say this about getting therapy as well. You said earlier something about like um, that these things take time that you have to, you know, keep working at it. And that's definitely true. I remember there are times when I'd show up for my you know, I'd show up for my appointment and be like, what the fuck am I doing here? Or I'd leave the appointment and be like, what did I even do today? What was that, you know? And just setting those 50 minutes a week, I think were important almost in like a symbolic way, saying like, I'm dedicating this time to try to work on myself. And yeah. then leaving and being like through the week trying to work on myself, but something sometimes just making the space. And I remember one of the sessions I said, my therapist, you know, say, say that again. As Sometimes you have a bad workout, but it's still it, good yeah, that you want. Exactly. And, and I remember one time a therapist just said something like, they just said like, how are you feeling? Like, um, you know, offhand, like you would just say, how are you feeling? Yeah. And I took it like very literally and realized like I couldn't feel my body. Like I felt like I don't know. I just, I took an inventory and I was like, and they ran me through that thing of like this, this thing of, you know, feeling the pressure of the chair pushing into your butt and, you know, you know, your feet sinking on the floor and the gravity pulling on you and, you know, literally just going through this inventory of like, what are you literally feeling? Yeah. which then helped me sort of, uh, you know, come back to the now, come back to the present moment, get into my body, get into my actual emotional feelings. Then I could start to talk about like identifying some thoughts I was having and, and feelings that I was having uh, more ephemerally um, than rather yeah. than just the somatic one. So anyway, that that's uh, that sounds like really good advice. I, I'd also say in terms of like personally overcoming the trap of the house or rather like your brain when your brain is doing like jail brain, uh, when it's like, you just can't do anything. Um, for me, I get, I don't know. It doesn't always work. You know, I mean, nothing always works, but just little strategies that if, I don't know, 
making tiny, tiny goals. Like one thing yes. I always thought about was when I was uh, younger, uh, swimming in the in the summer or something like that. There was this lake that was I would always think like the lake was so cold, like Michigan, uh, when we go visit my family, and I was like. I convinced myself that I didn't have to think about jumping in the water. I just had to think about jumping off the dock and not even jumping off the dock, but just like jumping, like being near the edge and then jumping. And if I just made my feet jump, then gravity would take over. Like the rest of it would just do it. Then you'd be in the water. Then you'd be dealing with it. If I'm thinking I'm going to put myself in this cold water, that's really scary. That's really painful. That's really difficult. Like I, I don't, I can't do it. But if I thought like I need to fire my Achilles tendons so that I move up and forward a little bit, then yeah. everything else just that that was something I could get myself to do. So um, sometimes if I can't get out of bed, I can't. It's because I can't think about the whole life and world and day. And I, you know, it's too. But I can maybe think about like put one foot on the floor and and yeah. then I would be and, and literally I'll walk myself through these tiny little victories um I of like that. little things to do i i can't think i got to do the dishes but i might be able to think turn the faucet on and and yeah. and you know taking it one and then eventually sometimes a little snowball will start and you'll be doing the thing so, so this is like that is a great technique and what that's called in like trauma treatment is to make an exposure hierarchy where the idea so you that that this intuitive strategy that you used is like right on the fucking money. So right. like what we do in a lot of trauma treatments is you make an exposure hierarchy. Maybe the idea of going out in broad daylight to a crowded place to have lunch with your friends seems terrifying, but maybe having a coffee in the morning when it's not that crowded at a place near your house seems less terrifying. And you could actually rate those things with a number. And I would pick the things that are a little bit challenging, like 20 out of a hundred but not 80 out of 100 right away because you want to scaffold up and have success experiences. So maybe start with scheduling lunch with a trusted friend at a place that's not that crowded and just know that you are not going to feel like doing that and your brain's going to supply you with an infinite number of excuses why you shouldn't. Um, and you just have to use some of these strategies to uh, try to Get yourself to go, but pick something that you rate your, your chance of success as 80%. Mm. Or don't pick something that you rate your chance of success as like, oh, fuck, I don't know, 10%. Don't, yeah. don't do that. Okay, that's great. Set yourself up to win, you know? Um, okay, well, let's ramp up. Uh, I just want to, there's a couple little questions. Uh, sweet nothing asked that I, I wanted to, to queue up for you if you, uh, or no, one was sweet nothing, one was sunless crowd, but just for you, whatever. One of them was, uh, can you recommend any further reading or meditation resource guides that you could like, uh, they said, cool to hear the promotion of meditation, any studies you would suggest for further reading or meditation resources guides you could suggest that would be much appreciated. Sure. So, okay. So there are well over 5,000, uh, studies using mindfulness or mindfulness meditation techniques with adults. It, you got to kind of define it a little, uh, narrow it a little bit in terms of what kind of outcomes you're interested in looking at, but, um, a place to start is so, yeah. So it, it really depends on kind of what outcomes and what populations you're looking at, but I would just go to Google scholar and whatever, outcome or population you're interested in, just put that with meditation in Google Scholar. So okay. for example, if you're interested in mindfulness and anxiety, just type those both into Google Scholar and you're going to get a bazillion hits. Okay. And you can read those abstracts all for free. Um, but I would say um, 
like a good place to start is if if you just want to put in mindfulness meta analysis on Google Scholar, that will give you studies of studies, um, which are kind of the gold standard evidence. So I would just start there. Um, I mean, I per like, you know, I have like five or six publications at this point using mindfulness as a predictor of oh. mental health and military veterans. So if you want to read like my work, you can just Google Scholar my name with mindfulness and you'll get a couple of hits. That's um, Nicholas Barr. And I yeah, if O L A S space B A R R. Yeah, if this person though, if they just want to shoot me an email or send me like a direct yeah. message with a little more um like narrowing of which population and which outcomes, I can and if they're having trouble, I can like get them a full PDF for free because okay. I, I can do that at the university. Cool. Um that's one. Is your email listed somewhere like, or should they just write my good bed brain? They can do my good bed brain, they can do uh Nicholas Dr. Nicholas Barrett dr nicholas bar at, at gmail that's fine there you go um, in terms of like books if if you want kind of a more theoretical underpinning i recommend what the buddha taught by walpola rahula that is a free pdf um what the buddha taught it's a little bit more kind of like the buddhist formulation um if you want kind of like uh uh more kind of practical, like how to meditation sort of uh, manual, I would start with one of the apps. I think they do a pretty, like Headspace, for example, I think does a pretty good job just giving you, you know, practical exercises you can try on your own. It's free. I don't have any affiliation with them at all. I just yeah. think that's like an easy one. I don't um, either, but uh, we're looking, we're open to sponsorships. <laughs> yeah right yeah uh they're also free like if you if you um go to just youtube and yeah. look up meditative stabilization you'll get a bunch of okay. exercises but again if you want um like a i can probably uh, what i can also do is i can put together like a little bit of a yeah i a, think that's what I, that sounds good i think i was going to suggest after but that yeah give me some resources i'll put them yeah. on the twitter and i'll put them on the uh on the good bad brain Instagram page. We'll just put them somewhere that people can find them. Um, yeah, great. And then the last little, uh, question here somebody had was, uh, and, oh, and, and please email. Yes. We'll post that. But if you do want a direct thing, please email my good bad brain at gmail.com or Dr. Nicholas Barr at gmail.com. Uh, and we'll, we'll get that for you. Um, last one here. Uh, we'll just maybe have a quick answer for it. Um, suggestions for finding, uh, they said herbalist, but they wrote therapist then <laughs> afterwards. Um, I've been taking pine pollen tincture. Anyway, uh, <laughs> suggestions for finding a therapist who specializes in complex PTSD. I've been struggling to find the right fit. Yeah. Um, so if, you, okay, so the herbalist one, I'm afraid I can't help with, yeah, but the fine. I think we'll therapist one. Yeah. So if you go to, um, for example, uh, prolonged exposure, which is the the treatment that I'm most extensively trained in. If you go to prolonged, the I can't remember the website off the top of my head, but if you just Google prolonged exposure, Edna Foa, uh, Foa, F-O-A, she has a website and the people who have completed the prolonged exposure training can be, are, are listed on her website and they're searchable. So you can see people, for example, who are trained in that methodology. But yeah, 
rather than necessarily looking up people who are trained like in complex PTSD, I would be looking for people who are trained in evidence-based trauma interventions. And, and again, the big ones are prolonged exposure, cognitive processing therapy, EMDR. Um, personally, I think uh, if you're a military veteran, it's a little bit different. I would email me directly. Um, but for lay people who did not experience combat trauma, um, my personal recommendation, because I'm trained in it and I've seen it work, is prolonged exposure. Again, there are other things that work. It's just my personal recommendation. So I would suggest finding a, a therapist who's trained in prolonged exposure. Again, you can do that by going to the Edna Foa's prolonged exposure training website and looking up therapists who are trained in that methodology. I would also, you know, if you go through an insurance person, uh, like for me, when I, if I schedule therapy, I, I call my insurance company and then they, um, they schedule me with someone at the behavioral health provider here in Southern Nevada. And I would just ask them, can, you know, you can call me back, but I need someone who's trained in this methodology. I have put in the chat, I believe this is the site, med.upenn.edu slash CTSA slash find PE therapist. Yeah. Um, that seems to be the correct. And they've got a listing of, it looks like every state they've got, and internationally as well. Um, so that's that's dope. All right, cool. Let's wrap it up. Uh, uh, do you want to add something to Don't Kill Yourself list real quick? Well, I know I, I uh, mentioned this last week, but yesterday I took like a hot bath with a little bit of tequila and continued reading my comic book and it was i needed that it was very relaxing oh, tequila in the bath yeah i've heard of shower beers but bath tequila is like next bath tequila. <laughs> yeah exactly um, yeah i don't I, recommend a lot of tequila for dealing with problems but it was just a little bit yeah no 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 of course we're not no i'm you know spirits i uh i'm gonna say i like love little journals just like oh, little this yeah. is a little like moleskin thing oh, yeah. Oh, I fucking love these things, dude. If I if I'm ever like this one's made by someone called Fabriano, I don't know. But they got a little pack of these. You go to like a you know, a, a Blick or something, some art store oh. and they've got like just a selection of moleskins and little no Oh my god, I love I love a little notebook. This uh, yeah. particular notebook I started uh to um track everything I eat and then how I poop as well, you know, Oh, nice! because <laughs> I finally yeah. made a gastroenterologist yeah. appointment, which shall yeah. end to place. end. Yes. On the fool's day, April 1st. Uh, <laughs> but I was like, I figured I'd, I'd start tracking now what I eat yeah. and how I poop, but it's just so yeah. nice. Oh, it just feels, Oh, and here's another, let me just say one, one other little thing here. Don't feel like you need to complete that thing or fill it all the way up. Fuck it. Write in as much as you want. And when you're ready for a new one, start oh, the new one. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I get unfinished. I get new, despite having unfinished journals. It's important. It's to start a new yeah. thing. Even just a composition notebook with the like weird black and white camo pattern, whatever they have on it. Ugh, terrific. Oh. All right. Thanks guys. We ran a little bit over today, but this, uh, it sounds like, the sound functioned. We segued in it. We got great questions. Thank you guys for joining us. I'm going to attempt to play the theme music here to like get us out. And uh, Dr. Nick, thank you again. I don't thank know. You guys. Gonna, great, well, great questions, really. Yeah, great questions. Thank you for joining us. You guys are the best. I'll put this one up this week as a pod. Patreon.com slash my good bad brain. Yeah.
Welcome to my good bad brain. I'm a normal person, so I'm insane. I've got depression and ADHD, but I'm doing better since I medicated me. I'm still not always sure whether I exist or what being a person even really is. But I figured out a long time ago that being alive is beautiful. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 